Welcome to this bonus episode of Something About Science. In this episode, we speak to Flybox to learn about their insect-fueled farming products that help to create a sustainable solution to agricultural waste. So I'm Larry Koch and I'm the Chief Commercial Officer at Flybox. And how did you become involved with the company? Um, so I, it was actually my, my baby, me and um, Andrea and Thomas. It um, started in a, on a walk, a walk in Cornwall, um, but quickly, quickly got out of hand uh, from there. Um, uh, so I got involved in the space because uh, since university, I'd been studying um, waste management and insect farming at, at university. I then ran another company, um, which I grew and then exited about four years ago. Um, and then basically, I thought that the industry at that time was really ready to enter into in a meaningful way. You know, a lot of the challenges of the early stage of the industry had been overcome. I've also grown up in Africa my whole life. So we really wanted to, 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 to do the angle of the global south and making something that would apply there. Uh, that very much fit what Andrea was doing. She just left. She'd just been working in the insect farming industry for seven years at, uh, you know, many of the companies in the UK. And um, she, she, you know, she and I and Thomas talked and we thought it would be a really good idea to, to set up. Um, we looked at the market. Um, we took our position in it, which we can talk about in this interview, and um, started chipping away. Yeah. Brilliant. It sounds like you had like quite a rich history um, in the industry. So kind of looking more to the industry itself, could you define what a sustainable food chain looks like? And how does this kind of compare to our current activities? Yeah. And I think this is a really good question because I think the, the definition of sustainability can can change for uh, for people. Um, I think it's, it's worth first just um, setting at the outset that you know our, our food system is very complex there is there are very many you know it's, it's a big supply chain that stretches across the world um most of the food say in the uk is you know is imported most of the animal feed is imported and so we rely on what's going on in those countries um, as far as like responsible sourcing of different ingredients um and and the sustainability of those those activities as that definition changes um what the food system has currently allowed us to do is drive the price of food down to put food in people's bellies, to increase their amount of protein so that they can live happy and healthy lives. And I thank everyone involved in the food system and the whole supply chain for having done that, first of all. So that, that I'm incredibly grateful that I live in a world where I can access calories um, you know, for the cost that I, and I can then focus my life on doing things like insect farming. Well, you know, so so it's only because of them that I'm able to do what I do. So I'm always very appreciative and, and have a lot of gratitude for that. What challenges we started coming up with is there's more people around. They want more protein um, in the form of, you know, meat and hamburgers. Um, but all of that protein itself needs to feed on protein as well. So protein is the is the kind of the protein crunch is the issue that we're facing. And so we currently get most of our protein from soy or, or fish meal, which we call traditional proteins. So the vast majority being soy. And that comes um, you know, from, from Brazil, um, from Southeast Asia. Um, and you know, that has been linked to, among other crops, lots of deforestation in the Amazon. So one of the biggest drivers of deforestation in the Amazon is soy. Now, lots of companies can responsibly source, but all you need is 20% of that supply to be irresponsibly sourced to start taking down 
more and more vegetation. But you can't get away from the fundamental truth, which is more protein is required. There is a demand for protein. And that demand comes from people who um, are overeating, let's say, in the West, but also also comes from people who are starving and who need protein in other parts of the world. We can never forget that you know, most of the increased demand is coming from people who will die unless they get it. So we can't mess with that supply chain and start making things cost more immediately you know, if those people are on the line. And so what the way we, we see it is a sustainable food chain needs to be efficient. So all of the waste we produce as a society, those are free calories going down the toilet. And we currently throw away about a third of them. So let's at least start with getting that back into the food system, which is, of course, where insects uh, come into the, 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 the play. There are many other alternative proteins that have lots of advantages, like um, you know, things like bioethanol or, or biofuels. Once, the, once you've got all the fuel and the oil out, there's a lot of waste there that can be turned into sort of um, fermented plant proteins and things like that. And there could be huge supplies of this. So there's some very ingenious ways of, um, you know, there's a cultured meat is something that maybe down the line could also work. Um, very difficult to see how, how we get there, like kind of like nuclear fusion, mm -hmm. but it's, it's, it's always a possibility. Um, there's things like algae, um, that that uh, that grow very efficiently. So there's a number of alternative proteins that should complement the existing food system to not necessarily destroy the supply chains that exist, since people have poured their money and their processes and their their, their, their into them. But any more protein demand online, we're going to need different proteins. We can't eliminate proteins because people need proteins. Um, we need more of them, and we need better protein. And so, I think sustainability would would be financial sustainability sustainability for the um, world's poor that actually generates all that protein. So like actually them having a livelihood, um, mm -hmm. not taking that away from them and sustainable from um, from a efficiency point of view. So we, we look at it more from the points of let's make everything super efficient first. Um, let's not try and eliminate things, um, uh, you know, unless we're dead certain. And then let's also have less food consumed all of us are walking around with way too many extra rolls in the in the uk at least i am um and so let, let's try and bring down our our calorie you know our, our calories that's all fine i don't want to coerce anyone to do that i would love it if people um i would love it if people ate less protein you know um but you know most of the world is not eating enough protein so even if we reduce the protein we eat ideally it should be going to people who who need it because your brain, your immune system, your entire, you know, all the things you depend on to improve your society require you to have nutritious food with high protein or, or higher protein. And so we can't forget that even if we are we in the, the global north are able to reduce our protein, it will it will mean that you know it'll be still going higher than we yeah. can reduce it by in the rest of the world. So we need better protein to fill that extra demand. Um, and keep the old ones more responsible, more attention, spotlight on people that are not being responsible with it, um, and reward people who are. And I think that's a I think that's a good aim for the next decade. Um, I think trying to go any faster than that might have unintended consequences that would probably fail to fix the problem and make everyone poorer and and, and worse off. Yeah. No, definitely. And I like how you've talked about designing strategies to complement existing systems not to replace them because I think you know it's fair to say that regarding kind of any social change or any kind of industrial change 
completely overhauling a, an existing system is rarely ever works you need to kind of take it slow and create things that you know educate people and show people that you know this can work but also if we do this it's a lot it's better it's more sustainable and it benefits more people um so talking specifically about flybox and your highlight product what is flybox grow and how does it work yeah so so flybox is an insect technology company so fundamentally we help food businesses to enter this space and to build their own insect farm. Um, currently right now, it's very difficult if you sort of have a lot of waste or you're consuming a lot of protein as part of your, your livestock farm or your, you, have a, you have a lot of food processing, you're producing a lot of waste and you want to do something with it, you want to generate more value for yourself and for society, let's say by doing an insect farm, it's very difficult to get someone to come and build that for you. It has to be done bespoke, needs consultants, all the rest of it, and needs quite a big price tag if you want to do it, certainly in uh, the, the global north. So Flybox is fundamentally addressing that problem. Like, How do we lower the barrier entry, empower people with the tools to get into this exciting space across the world, global south and global north? And so we are developing a suite of, tech, uh, of, of modules, Flybox modules, that deal with the whole insect farm, from breeding, nursery, um, growing, um, uh, waste processing, product processing. So we want to have a full farm solution. So you can go as far as from one Flybox all the way to a 30 fly box farm in a in a full configuration. That's our, our North Star, if you like. Um, and with, with with these fly box modules, they can be arranged in different configurations to suit any process, any um, you know product specification. Where what we started with was the fly box grow, which you just mentioned, and that deals with larva um, who are at the what we call the seedling stage. So they are they are they are basically like juvenile larvae or seedlings. They're like a few days old. Um, and so that's the point at which they're robust enough to start eating through large amounts of waste very quickly. Um, and so the Flybox Grow sits next to organic waste. You put the organic waste in and you add the seedlings. And then every 10 days, they just process it all, turn it into fertilizer and feed right there, right there and then. And so that's what the Flybox Grow does is it gives people an on-farm or on-site solution to dealing with their waste. That has many advantages because otherwise you have to send the waste off to an insect farm, uh, which costs money in logistics. Actually costs about, you know, a third of your costs is just transporting waste to your farm. So it eliminates all of that. Um, and for certain people, they can actually use the products that come out of the grow in their own supply chain. So, you know, if they have animals that can eat insects, they can use the waste on their farm to turn that into feed for their own animals, rather than having to process it, at a, at a company, send it back to them as pellets. You know, it's you cut a lot of you cut a lot of links out of the chain, a lot of middlemen out of the chain, um, as opposed to doing it in a central big um, factory. And so the Flybox Grow is ready to go and allows people to do that today. Um, and uh, and and yeah, so we 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 then work with partners to supply them with seedlings on a subscription, and they all they need to do is load the waste into the grow, and then they can generate generate the products yeah that's quite cool and 10 days is quite a quick turnaround um from is that basically from inputting the um the waste to kind of getting the end product wow yeah. that's crazy yeah so you can put about uh nine tons every cycle which is 10 days long and mm -hmm. that will turn that that will turn into three tons circa of fertilizer ready to go um you know dry powder fertilizer and um called frass 
and it'll turn into about one and a half tons of live insects of live insects in one cycle. So you can do three cycles a month, basically, in one one grow. Yeah. Oh, that's pretty cool. Um, have you noticed any kind of other products on the market that are as quick or have as many kind of benefits to this? Or do you think that the um the Flybox Grow is pretty much a standalone kind of pioneering a new sort of waste disposal system? No, so there are other people doing a similar thing to what we're doing, some in the UK already. Um, and also some uh, in Europe, and all all taking a similar approach to us, which is on-farm solutions, smaller scale. Um, what we've seen in the industry is everyone doing the large-scale stuff, and we're now all coming to address the SME side of the, the market with um, ready-to-go, you know, prefab um, modular solutions that, that are kind of lo low effort to set up and start mm -hmm. using. And that really follows the trend that most livestock industries have have, have gone down. You know, when, when, whenever livestock starts, you, people do it at a big level and then they start on-farm solutions. The same happened in anaerobic digestion. You know, the first plants were massive, like municipal level sewage systems that dealt with all of that. And now you've just got on-farm solutions the size of a, you know, the size of a car that you can put on your farm and do biogas. So it's, it, it, we're sort, if you like, we're we're doing the, the on-farm, small, mid-scale solution which we think has more uh in terms of like just sheer number of people that would want to get into this obviously i, I think it's a bigger market in terms mm -hmm. of, of of size but um you need the people doing the big factories as well and they're, they're always going to be necessary there's lots of advantages at a certain scale to doing a big factory of course especially in europe but um you know where we're also focused which is the global south there just simply isn't the infrastructure or the skill sets to, to have one of those big automated factories. You need something a lot more um, modular, off-grid, low infrastructure. And so I think we fit really nicely into a lot of use cases that a lot of people don't. And with our presence in Kenya, you know, we, we, we field tested the, the product in Kenya um, from right from the beginning. So we're very confident in its ability to withstand the extra heat loads, humidity issues in those in those countries. So um, so so yeah, I think I think we've got the most versatile solution at the moment, but there's certainly other people who are validating that it's a it's a high it's the next high growth space in insect farming is sorting out these these on-farm smaller solutions. Yeah. No, definitely. Um, could you discuss some of the case studies of the product being used in Kenya or and in the UK? Yeah. So in in the UK, we're setting up for the first time. So we've been in R and D for three years, as you. Um, might might know but um so we're we're taking our baby steps out in, in terms of commercializing but the trials we've done so in, in terms of the uk we have a big farm uh, chicken farm called dinton's and so they are working with us it's about a four or five container system uh it, that's going to go into live insects that get fed back to the chickens um so that's that's the uk we are evaluating a number well a number of use cases two that are pretty serious that we want to have agreed at least in principle by the end of this year. And that will be two smaller farmers as well doing it in the UK. Um, in Kenya, the main people we've been working with is the Kiambu government, which are which is a, a county right next to, next to Nairobi, the capital, where they do most of the agriculture. And that has been um, a system up in Kiambu that is dealing with farm waste um, and market waste. So there's lots of market waste in in Africa that currently just is paid to take to the dump site. And we're turning that into a scheme which then provides low cost fertilizer and insects to 
local farmers. And so that that's the idea with them is um, the government is looking at this as a as a, as a potential unlock to, to speed up farming, lower the cost of farming for smallholder farmers. And so, yeah. No, and hopefully it'll, you know, kind of help to kickstart a lot of kind of um, areas of production and, and growth there for sure. So you've mentioned that the company was in R&D for a couple of years. Did you kind of encounter any challenges in the design of um, Flybox Grow or um, other products? Yeah, so it is, it is actually very, it, it was a challenge for the, for the last three years. Um, you know, I think on the face of it, people people look at these container systems, not just for insect farming, mind you, for anyone doing container agriculture or vertical farming. And on the surface of it, you're just like, eh, it's just a box with like uh, an HVAC system in it. You know, you just stick the thermostat on and it would just maintain the temperature. It turns out that that, you know, that couldn't be further from the truth. The problem is, is when you're dealing with, when you're thinking about it as like a an office, imagine if you put a, a shipping container, you just wanted to sit in there and that would be your office. You can just put an AC in, set it to, you know, 20 degrees or whatever, and then and and you're all good. The problem is when you have nine tons of biology inside there um, that has what the fastest, one of the fastest metabolisms on on Earth. That's why they can eat that waste in 10 days. What would take us, you know, months uh, comparatively to eat? They just chow through that, and um, that gives off a lot of gas, a lot of ammonia, a lot of uh, incredible amounts of heat. Um, changes the humidity big time because you've got all this wet waste that is then like uh, the, 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 the water vapor is going to the air. And also, if you want to stack this room full of biology, it has to be stacked really um, tightly. So you want to get the good unit, unit economics. This thing has to be to the rafters. And so how do you get air to flow through the gaps in every single tray and maintain a perfect climate at, at the tray level, at the, at the insect? Um, you know, so each individual insect is in a happy climate, not just your sensor is telling you, oh, the ambient temperature I'm looking at here is okay. But how is, can you can you have the entire thing evenly done? And so the way that you circulate air, we had to do a lot of innovation and that's what our patent covers, is how we, is, is how we were able to get the air to move around uh, efficiently. And let's just say that's where all of the, the, the trouble was. That, that's where we cut our teeth, yeah. That's quite interesting. I don't think, I mean, I wouldn't have thought that the air was No, we didn't either. <laughs> we were, we, <laughs> it was a big flying ointment for us as well, but, you know. So. Yeah, because I wondered, like, how did you decide on um, the the, the larvae, the insects you used? Did you basically pick a non-invasive species or, like, how, how did that kind of, like, decision be made? Oh, I see. You mean in terms of black soldier fly, what, why is that used um, mm. as opposed to other insects? Yeah. Yeah, so it's it's a combination of uh, flies themselves don't don't have mouth parts, so they they aren't a known vector for disease. That that especially that species of fly, and at the same time have a very very fast um, consumption rate. So um, about seventy to eighty percent of all insects produced for feed are black soldier fly. Uh, the rest is basically mealworms. Um, yeah. is, is mealworms. So there's a company in, in France that's doing mealworms in a big way. But BSF, you know, across the board, like let's say out of 100 companies, 80 of them will be focused on it, on on uh, on um, Hermetica lucens, the uh, the black soldier fly. And that's it's 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 um, disease uh, um, vector profile as well as its feed conversion and its speed of of consumption. So it's it's really like the science just said. You know, computer says this one kind of thing. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's tick ticking all the boxes <laughs> that we needed to tick. Yeah. Cool. So um Firebox partners with several leading institutions like Innovate UK, HSBC, EC, U the EU Horizons 2020 projects, and many, many more. Why is it so important for organisations of this size to come together like this um, to support startups and SMEs? And what benefits can it bring to companies that are specifically targeting key sustainability goals? Um, yes. OK, so I mean, on the first point, this is like a getting into kind of political philosophy a bit, which I which is a passion area of mine. But um, I think that if there's one role that I would want a government to do, like, you know, as uh, it would be to keep keep its citizens safe. If there's one thing that we can all agree that it should do, uh, you know, even to the most libertarian of us, it's keep, it's, it's keep, keep us safe, at least be able to, to do that. I think all of the stuff like climate change, um, changing food systems, I would count as an existential risk, right? As, as, same as like diseases or asteroids hitting us or whatever. It's like, these are existential risks and I would be happy personally to pay money to as an insurance policy against those existential risks. And the best way of the government deploying that insurance money is to invest in um, R&D in areas that most large corporations are not willing to invest in yet. So, you know, fusion is a great example. Like, you know, imagine coming to someone saying, I I've got a great R&D project. It'll take 100 years to figure out and I need a and I need $100 billion. No, you know, no people are thinking in terms of the next, like, you know, the next business cycle. They're not thinking in terms of 100 years. So that's really where the government has people's interests at heart. They're talking about the existential long-term risks. And so I think it's fantastic that, you know, Innovate UK, um, KTN, um, the, the EU Horizons program, that that's exactly what they do. They're all fantastic people. They work, um, you can tell they're all motivated in this way, like in absolutely the, the right way. Um, and what that does is it then signals that support then signals to the wider industry that, hey, this is something we should now take seriously because it's actually aligned with the government as well. And, you know, the governments are very, very large and, and have, have quite a big, big percentage of the economy is now kind of government involvement. And so it's, you know, to investors, to to industry, they look at that and they say the government is clearly telling us that this is they're trying to set up this industry for the future because it aligns with everyone's objectives. So we should look into this this area. We should make at least some early investments. We should try and get our head around it. And so it's a nice virtuous cycle, basically, where you're sort of leading people down the right path without having to coerce anyone. It's just like, we're going to invest in these things. There's going to be a big payout at some point. Like, the earlier you get in, the better. And 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 I think that's um, that's great. Yeah. No, definitely. It's kind of similar to um, the conversation we we're having earlier about overhaul how you can't just overhaul like the industrial practices or workflows it's that there has to be kind of bits of support here and there and then eventually it will snowball into something great it's just that you know sometimes you have to focus on the smaller or like the things that aren't as flashy and then eventually they will become you know foundational institutions um but no it's, it is really great great to hear that there's a lot of investment in the area so as you kind of mentioned, the company's taking baby steps into the UK for its um, using its products and things. What are the next steps for the company? Are there any kind of developments that you're working towards or is it more kind of a see how things go with this particular UK based project at the moment? Yes. So we're working on um, various angles 
So like I mentioned, the th our three products is the Flybox Breed, mm -hmm. the Flybox Hatch, and the Flybox Grow. And so those three modules can be configured into many different um, exciting, I guess, farm configurations, some of which apply really well in the global south. The way they do things over there is different because the climate is better. You can actually do a lot of the growing or the waste management side out in the open, like in greenhouses, which is a lot cheaper. And you can then really start doing it at scale for communities. And so we're very excited about some of the conversations we're having there. So hopefully we'll announce, you know, more about that um, soon. But 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 there's big opportunity there. Um, then in the the UK, what we're doing is get it focusing on our first proper you know demonstrator farm with with Dinton's getting really well. We want to make sure that experience is great for them as well. And then um, at the same time, evaluating different cases in the UK and in Europe. Um, Legislation is the main barrier, unfortunately, for us or any other insect farm scaling. Really, really need the government to um, at least bring us in line with the EU's regulations because it's it's choking off the industry too much at the moment. And lots of people I know are sitting on the sidelines just waiting to get in and put capital behind things. If only the government would um, legislate stuff. I mean, I, I definitely ha I'm not, you know, the government's doing a lot of great stuff, but I'm just saying, yeah, there's stuff that would be very simple to, to change that I think could have a lot of value. And once that's done, I think we'll see a lot. So I think that kind of aligns with our timelines. We're just trying to make sure that the next uh, the next 18 months, all of our existing projects go really well and, and, and a couple other, you know, smaller case studies. And then we'll we'll see. We're also raising a, 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 an investment round at the moment um, that will hopefully close by the end of the year. So, yeah. Yeah, lots of exciting stuff going on then by the sounds of it. So um, the last question I have for you today is where would you recommend that our readers go to either learn more about the company, to learn more about insect farming or sustainability in the um, food chain itself? Hmm. Um, I mean, definitely there's a report by uh, the WWF and Tesco's. Um, I forget the name exactly of the report, but I'm sure if you, if you Google WWF uh, space Tesco's or just WWF insect protein report or something like that, um, that was the best kind of overview. I mean, it's a big, big report, but it's the best overview that's freely accessible that I came across. I think that's a great way to just get a full picture of what's going on. Um, and then uh, in terms of for us, you know, our website is has sort of by design limited information on it since we were in R&D mode before. Um, and we'll, we'll change that soon, um, uh, hopefully. And um, uh, and yeah, as far as like sustainability use, I personally, I get my diet from from YouTube, from various different um, YouTubers, but of course I'm in the millennial generation, so, I, so maybe that's not for everyone, but um, there's some there's a, there's a really cool um, YouTube channel called Decouple Media that I think gives a very balanced view. Um, they're extremely pro-environment, but like kind of the topics we've been hit on, hitting on today, the realities of like, you know, supply chains, the mineral realities of the world for transitioning. They're very soberly looking at what it would actually take to solve the problem rather than just saying they wish it was different. Uh, and I think, yeah, I think that's that's how I'd look at the, the space because I think that kind of thinking will have to win out. Even if right now we're in a space where there's a lot of people that are agitated and annoyed that things aren't changing fast, which is fair enough, um, the solutions aren't necessarily always there. And the realities aren't always looked at in the face. 
and um, but there are more and more people that are coming out now with a much more sensible line. And um, you know, when we start hitting headfirst the limitations of like there's not enough minerals in the ground to make electric cars, electric cars actually potentially more damaging than non-electric cars mm -hmm. in terms of CO2. Um, you know, just just these kind of things that are coming out now that are just like kind of bursting the bubble a little bit. I think we now need people to like really look at the serious stuff. So I encourage people to try and find that kind of content that that isn't just complaining, but it's like, okay, how are we seriously gonna gonna solve this problem? Yeah. No, definitely. I think it can help to give people people a bit of a peace of mind as well to know that, you know, what actually is the situation and what efforts are being made. Even if they're small, like there's still some sort of, you know, reasoning or um kind of program in place to help either address the issue or mitigate the issue. Um, yeah. No, I definitely have to check that myself as well. Okay, well, that's a wrap for this episode. Thank you for listening to Something About Science. And don't forget to check out the content discussed as all links are in the description. If you enjoyed listening, please think about leaving a review on your podcast provider, sharing this episode on social media, or with friends, family, and colleagues you think might enjoy it as well. This episode was brought to you by Azo Network. We'll be back soon with more discussions about science.